Nils Klim laureate Sonja Bogujevic receives the prize for her original work within EU environmental law and emissions allowance trade. She is associate professor in environmental law at the Faculty of Law, Lund University of Sweden. In this interview, I talk with her over Skype about how she came into the field of law, why she became a researcher and what her field is about. I hope you enjoyed this interview and thanks for listening. So, Sonia, how did you find your way into to law? My way into law was through literature. I have always enjoyed reading a lot and I read a lot um, as a child. And I had a lot of so-called mind travels. So when I lived, I grew up in, in Malmö and in Serbia, in fact, but I guess the age where I started reading, I was already in, in Sweden. And uh, I explored through kind of mind travels, very exotic countries, exotic if compared to Malmö, Sweden, so India, and I loved reading about Africa. So at a very early age, I knew that I wanted to travel and I wanted to travel. And I did that during my studies. And the way I kind of fell into law was that I wanted to learn, never to become a lawyer, but to learn how to create a world with words, kind of how to illustrate reality with words. Um, and that is perhaps also why England then became the, um, the place where I went to study law or the common law system because there um, if you read kind of court cases they're very much a story uh, storytelling it was through that kind of uh, path that I started studying law so not to become a lawyer but to learn how to con- kind of illustrate uh, and make an argument and illustrate your case um, you use discourse analysis as a method to unpack how we discuss carbon markets. So it was through that way that I came to law. The way I came to environmental law, I took a course uh, called uh, EU Environmental Law and Policy that was given by uh, Maria Lee. She's a professor now at UCL in London, but at the time she was at King's College in London where I did my undergrad study. And one of the topics that we had was uh, market incentives so used to regulate uh, environmental uh, problems. And I still remember, I was extremely fascinated. I had never heard about emissions trading. I had never heard about a carbon market. And I was extremely fascinated, and I still am fascinated. So I actually wrote my thesis, my undergrad thesis, on environmental markets. Uh, So it already then kind of captured my attention. And then I applied to do my PhD on the same topic. When you say environmental markets, is, is that like the um, carbon emission uh, thing? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So environmental markets can, uh, that is the very broad concept. So you can have the carbon markets, so emissions trading schemes, or but you can also have water markets. You have that in New South Wales, for example, in Australia. So where you trade with water rights, so access to uh, to water. Uh, you can also have uh, fishing quotas where you trade with uh, uh, fishing rights. Um, and there are also recent trends of trading with bio, um, 
biodiversity. So for example, let's say that you have a site that's protected, so nature protection, and then you want to construct something in that site. Uh, but then there would be an environmental harm uh, in that site, and then you can pay to offset, like an offset of that biodiversity, so that you can still make that environmental harm, but you will compensate it in, in, in a, uh, that, that construct. So there are different markets, but my, my um, research has been mainly on uh, emissions trading. If I'm not wrong, um, we all have some kind of relationship with emissions trading when we um, pay our plane tickets, right? Is that, yes. is that true? Uh, you can. <laughs> I mean, some, some airlines have started uh, with carbon offsetting so that you can pay uh, a fee. Uh, um, um, but it's not, as it stands now, it's not compulsory. Uh, when you buy an air ticket. Um, so there was actually a huge case in the EU because the EU actually extended the carbon market to aviation. Uh, uh, but then that was heavily criticized by airlines outside of the EU. But that was a recent case. So aviation, international aviation, is not covered by the EU ETS, which is the EU emissions trading scheme. But the EU has plans to extend to aviation outside of the EU as well. Um, I guess today uh, it should be rather obvious why uh, this topic is important. Was it when you first sort of began your studies? Well, did we have that much attention to the, the climate change and environment and that stuff? I know it has been going on for a good for a long while, but perhaps not in the in the academy. Yeah, so that is actually a really good question because when I if we look at the carbon market, which is the biggest to date, that is the EU uh, uh, trading scheme. So it's the EU ETS, and that market started working in two thousand and five. So it was decided upon in 2003, but it actually started working in 2005. And I started my research on emissions trading or my PhD research in 2007. So it was only two years after uh, the trading scheme had actually started. So there was not much legal debate on the issue at all. So the, the legal debate that obviously there was some debate, but that debate was extremely descriptive so uh, um, to describe how the market looked or how it was set up uh, or it was extremely promotional um, so it was promotional in the sense that um, it really encouraged uh, all participants of the market and the wider public and also regulators to embrace the trading scheme and so I found that it was extremely Hard to engage with that kind of in, in that way limited literature. So the literature that existed instead on emissions trading uh, was well, not instead, but the literature that exists was very much of economic nature. So it was economists that had described not necessarily emissions trading, but ideas about externalities, for example, that then lawyers used and incorporated. So my research was very much about creating a framework uh, for a legal analysis. So to say, 
okay, we have emissions trading, but what does that in fact mean? So who are we regulating? How are we regulating? With what consequences? And the central question was, I mean, what I discovered when I did that research is that when we talk about emissions trading, when we talk about these environmental markets, we in fact talk about extremely different regimes. Um, so I then created these, what I call three models. So they're not exclusive, the models, but I use these three, three models to illustrate the diversity of our understanding of carbon markets. Their emissions trading is about cost uh, efficiency. So it's all about being cost effective. Um, then the other market was all about replacing state regulation with private property rights. Uh, so it was very much about creating rights in nature or rights, um, greenhouse gas emissions. So as to be able to regulate that group of actors without any interference from state regulators. And the third kind of understanding of emissions trading was very much that this is just traditional regulation. It's just a bit more uh, flexible. And what those kind of different understandings show is that we cannot assume that carbon market uh, or the carbon markets work in a kind of a uniform way. So we have to, in order to set up these markets in an effective way, we need to be extremely clear on who we are regulating, why we are regulating, and with which consequences. And those are kind of key questions to think about, you know, what is the role of the regulator? Uh, so when can the regulator intervene in this market and with which consequences? So, I mean, it's, yeah, to, to answer your question uh, is that, um, or to even add to your question, is that I found that my research kind of contributed uh, to the debate in the sense that it added, it created a legal framework for analysis that didn't exist before. For carbon trading, and also a sort of a critical framework, it sounds yes. like. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. When I when I sort of browse through the the various uh, abstracts and and summaries of your work, I notice this little. This is very some humanistic uh, terminology. This this concept, <laughs> this yeah. little concept, um, which were culture specific. Yeah. You talk about culture specificity in in environmental law. C could you mm -hmm. elaborate a bit on, on yeah. what you mean there? Yeah. If we just um, so emissions trading came to the EU, it came through international law, uh, international environmental law. So it came through, it was suggested as a regulatory method. Uh, so it was suggested as a way to regulate emissions, uh, greenhouse gases. Um, uh, it came from the Kyoto Protocol, which is the kind of the, the first international treaty where the parties to the treaty agreed to have kind of legally binding um, emissions reductions. And what was often then kind of assumed, so, so th the idea behind um, the proposal put forward at Kyoto is that we can have an international, a global carbon market. Uh, and this has been very much the understanding of carbon markets, that carbon mar the markets in general are neutral, uh, that you can just bind them together and then we can all trade um, they wouldn't need that legal specificity that you kind of would require with traditional regulation. 
And what I kind of quickly noticed in my research or what my research shows is that it's more complicated than that. So a market is not something that's neutral. A market is very much culturally impacted. And um, so we have to look at the context, the legal context in which it exists. So for example, the way we discuss carbon trading in the EU would be very different to the way we discuss carbon trading in the US, for example. And I showed that, so with these, when coming back to the models, these three models, for example, the model where property rights are kind of the core, or the model where the most important actors in carbon trading are in fact the traders. Um, so that was the, the, the second model. So th that model, for example, says that what is most important with environmental markets is that the ones who trade in the market have kind of the exclusive power. So they can determine amongst themselves uh, on which terms to trade and how to trade. And, and that model is heavily uh, influenced by public choice theory, for example. That model is heavily present in the U.S. kind of legal uh, scholarship. It's non-existent in, in the EU legal scholarship, for example. Uh, and that kind of comes back to, you know, how do we view the regulators? How, how do we view the state? Um, so in the EU, you have a very different understanding of that than you would have uh, elsewhere. To uh, kind of a, a shorter answer to your question would be that markets are non-neutral. They depend on the context in which they exist. Law is non-neutral. It very much depends on, you know, the meaning that we give to laws, uh, you know, takes inspiration from, you know, the context in which we apply it. Um, so we have always to consider that context. It, it's interesting because when you say it like that, it, it seems pretty obvious. Yeah. Um, perhaps I've been too long in the humanities, but but, <laughs> yeah. but but still someone had to actually say it and do it. I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, I think here we come back to interdisciplinary work. I think it might be something that's, it might be something that's obvious in certain fields but not in others so again i think it's it i very much think it's the the influence of economics here or or the kind of general understanding of a market that a market is you know kind of the initial understanding of of of, of a market as as something extremely uncomplicated they're very straightforward and that we don't need to regulate them very much and i think that was very much the initial approach to carbon trading that you know actually we don't need much law so we don't need to think so much about the context um and i think that has with time now proven wrong so i think now one is much more aware of um also the complexity of carbon trading but also the relevance of illegal cultures but that, that was not obvious uh, when carbon trading started. Perhaps a basic question, but um, who are regulators? What what uh, what what um, characterizes yeah. a regulator in 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 law? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I mean, in this specific context, is I look at the EU level. 
So then it would be the commission uh, who sets for the commission sets forward legislation, uh, proposal for legislation, and then in most cases it's the council and the parliament who adopt that, and then the commission executes that law. So that would be the regulator here, that construct would be the regulator. But then we also have the, the national authorities who, depending on the national legal systems, also have a say in the construction of carbon trading. So it's a multi-leveled system. Yeah, and it sounds like it's very complex, uh, especially mm -hmm. when we have sort of a national sense of law and when you meet our international sense of law and, and, and all that. Yeah, no, definitely. And lots, that lots, is... Lots yeah. of meetings. <laughs> a lot of meetings. <laughs> and yeah, and sometimes uh, ships passing in the dark. Exactly. Uh, and you also have the international environmental law aspect um, um, that the EU then implements. But that is, I mean, that uh, debate between EU law and uh, national law is very much what EU law is about. Kind of that you have the EU law, but the EU law doesn't stand on its own. It always has to, obviously. It exists at the national level. Does that mean that you have to f sort of have a grasp of every law, uh, law system in, in Europe? <laughs> yeah, uh, sounds uh, daunting. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think if you had that, you would be the most amazing EU lawyer. But um, but no, uh, I mean some some scholars obviously um, conduct comparative law uh, across different member states, so they have a good grasp of of, of those countries. But uh, yeah, to be a good lawyer, you obviously have to have a grounding in some legal system some national legal system to understand how it actually impacts at the national level. So I was educated, so my legal degrees are uh, from England and in parts also from Germany. So when I, so although, so I'm Swedish, but I, 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 um, I did my legal education uh, in, in England, but I work now in Lund University. So when I actually came back to Sweden, which was in 2011, after I finished my PhD, it was extremely interesting because then I had to learn a new legal system uh, and see how EU law was implemented there. And, and that was extremely interesting and, 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 and very, very valuable um, to compare also how and then you realize to what extent, you know, the EU law, we have EU law, but we also have these extremely different uh, national systems uh, in each national system, although they should kind of implement uh, EU law uh, uniformly. Obviously, there is, there is always, again, kind of the legal context, the legal culture in each member state. When you came back to Sweden, uh, I mm -hmm. guess you, you could say that you had somewhat of an outsider perspective, uh, mm -hmm. having been abroad uh, and stuff like that. Um, did you have any, like, what we in Norwegian call the aha upplevelser, uh, <laughs> uh, eurekas, or, or was that something yeah. that surprised you with the, the way Swedish law went about? Yes, definitely. 
yeah, I didn't I didn't actually expect it because I grew up. I mean, as I said, I, I'm I'm of Serbian origin, but I grew up in Sweden and um, and I left Sweden when I was 19, and then I came back 10 years later to work at Lund University, and um, and I just assumed again, kind of I had. Um, you know, underestimated uh, legal culture, uh, <clears throat> although my research is very much about that. I just assumed that this is a country I, I know very well, I grew up here, and it wouldn't be a cultural shock at all. But it was, uh, it really, really was. And one of the things that still fascinates me, and which is different, I think, from the countries I've been before, is this trust in the state. Uh, extreme trust in the state, and you can see that also in the in the legal system, obviously. Uh, so, in the sense that courts, litigation in courts, have, I feel, uh, a different role than they have, for example, in in the U- in England, where the courts can be extremely kind of flamboyant <laughs> in their judgments. Uh, the judges don't really act in the same way in Sweden. And I, th- and I thought that was extremely interesting. Well, this is actually my, my next project. I'm working on uh, adjudication. So how judges uh, adjudicate and, and, and think about uh, environmental rights. Um, so when they actually reach the courts, which role uh, and how do judges then give effect uh, to these rights and how to view rights. And I thought that was interesting in, in, in England, like, as I said, uh, um, um, there is... I think a broader acceptance of, of, of judges kind of uh, interpreting and expanding uh, the existing law. And when I talked to, ju- to a particular judge in Sweden, it was very funny because in Sweden we have environmental courts. And then I asked um, that particular judge the question, you know, how how he views uh, environmental rights and his role as a judge in giving effect to environmental protection and to what extent he feels that he can engage in interpretation and pushing the law forward. And then the answer came, you know, well, you know, we just, you know, allow or disallow permits, you know, we can... (laughs) And I thought that was extremely interesting that uh, how you as a judge also view your role that, you know, this particular, like his particular understanding was, you know, I'm confined to this specific task and there is nothing beyond that I can do. And I find that extremely uh, fascinating how judges also understand their own role in interpreting and applying the law. I haven't done any law studies at all, but for example, in, in the US, I think most people recognize that a judge is more than someone who will just judge in cases, but that he or she sets precedence and and really it's significant um, what they are ruling on. Uh, so this is entirely different in in Sweden, right? Yes, and 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 and, and, and even in the U.S. And so recently, Justice Scalia uh, died, and that was a couple of weeks ago. So he was the Supreme Court judge. And he was very much in um, of the understanding that um, you know the Constitution is dead, so it's not a body of law which is alive, which you can interpret in light of you know what's happening in the world today or how society looks today. So he had that 
kind of understanding that as a judge, you cannot, you know, interpretation according to today's standards, but the way that the law was written at the time. And that, and, and that view is not shared by many other um, judges at the Supreme Court. And I think that debate very much divides legal scholarship in the U.S. So that you have uh, scholars who share Scalia's understanding and other scholars who are very much opposed to that. So I think that although there is, even in the U.S., kind of the understanding that, you know, you can push the law forward, to what extent you can actually do that as a judge is not given. So it's very much a heated the, the debate. But mm. I think in Sweden, it's, it's this, uh, I mean, this is kind of my own understanding of it, the fact that, you, you, <clears throat> this is me generalizing now, but I think in Sweden, there is the understanding that you don't even need that role for the court because, you know, this kind of the state will do what's right anyway. And I think that is a very interesting, interesting understanding doesn't make for fun TV shows, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, but it's very interesting. I mean, I'm 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 in the U.S. Uh, at the time, so I'm in uh, uh, California. I'm I'm at, I'm at Berkeley for a short research visit, and it's very interesting. I'm attending um, environmental law seminars here, um, and uh, there is. I mean, I think the understanding of the regulator is the the exact opposite of what we have in Sweden. It's very much, you know, the failure of re- the regulator, which is seen as the issue here. I mean, both the failure to regulate and the fact when it does regulate that it does it in an ineffective way. And it's extremely interesting to see, you know, how, what the result is of that initial kind of understanding of of regulator. What I found interesting about law um, compared to other disciplines is that it seems somewhat more your research is really can be used in a very directly direct way it seems like uh, from from Mm -hmm. the outside at least. Uh, What do you think about that relationship between what you study and uh, and sort of um, what you research and, and research itself? Yeah, I mean, I think that is something that I, as a researcher, think about. So the relevance of yeah. this to the wider public, too, or um, not necessarily to the not not only to the wider public, but also the kind of the practical impact of it. And I think the scholarship can take very different roles. Yeah, I don't think the value of scholarship always needs to be translated to practical relevance. So it can also have different relevance. So, um, I mean, part of it, the way I feel that I implemented, to use kind of legal terminology, is in discussion with my students. So, again, kind of that, I mean, again, if we go back to my, my work on carbon trading, it that I find that that is a good example to show, for example, you know, why legal cultures matter or why we need to think about law as an instrument that is very much alive. So not a kind of a a text that is dead, but it's very much kind of given life to uh, through our interpretation and use. So I don't know if that answers your, your question, really. Well, well, it does. So, so that is one understanding. But then there is, uh, I mean, there is work 
also that can be done with the commission. Um, so, for example, um, this summer uh, I will start a new project where scholars work much much more closely with the commission, for example, so the European Commission. So to discuss, you know, what can the links be between those two. But I don't think scholarship always needs to have that impact. Yeah, the re- and and the reason why I ask is is not uh, just because there's this discussion about humanities and and uh, that uh, part of the university um, and what what the relevance is in your case the environmental law it seems there's a lot of stake here going on uh, mm-hmm. because the world is allegedly coming to an end <laughs> it seems so uh, so law would pretty much be an uh, important key in preventing that i would guess so understanding how that works seems really important now yeah i mean i think that what lawyers i mean if i speak for for yeah for my entire discipline <laughs> to be that humble well you are the nils klim winner now now you can <laughs> time to do that, yeah. I mean, I think what we as lawyers should be better at is to explain, and and include myself there, uh, uh, is to explain why law matters. I think that is one of the. So, do you think that although scholarship doesn't, its value should not be determined, you know, by its practical uh, impact always. So it doesn't have to have a practical impact to be valuable. I think, but. I think we do need to be better at explaining why law matters. And what you said about the world coming to an end, uh, so there is still, I mean, although in Europe we're not so used to climate skepticism, if you travel outside of the EU, one encounters it much more frequently. And I think there, again, to to be able to show and explain, you know, why does law matter in that context? Like, why is climate change actually also a legal problem? So it's not only uh, a problem where natural science is relevant, but also law. So, for example, I mean, I've already mentioned Justice uh, Scalia, but in one of the one of the key environmental cases in the uh, in the U.S., he actually I think he has this phrase where he says. You know, climate change is not a legal problem. Uh, it's not a legal issue. So very much kind of taking a, a not wanting to kind of discuss, kind of, you know, the understanding that, you know, I as a lawyer will not engage with a problem which is both for the regulators but also for kind of natural science to discuss. And I think as lawyers generally that we need to, of show that actually we do need in responding to climate change many of those responses are legal responses um so we need we need to think about you know how do we respond and what are the implications for society and and how does that response look like and how how should we best construct it and those are not only legal but there are there are kind of central legal questions do you have um, an example that would sort of illuminate that point? Like how how climate change is a legal problem. 
Yeah. Um... Yeah. I mean, I think my my work on carbon trading shows that that any response that we collectively set up to an issue, uh, you know, concerning greenhouse gases uh, or you know any other environmental issue that we face, is inherently a legal response um, and. In order to understand how to construct that response, we need to understand law and how law functions and, and you know, what we can do and what we can't do and who will then set up this framework and how to apply it. It's my fault. I, I, I should perhaps rephrase the question a bit. So if you if if you try to convince like not the young academic on the other end of the Skype conversation, but... but um, someone on the street as as the typical the, the one on the street could be also an academic uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um, but someone who thinks he or she is not interested in in law studies um, mm-hmm. are there that that specific example that the 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 the, his, the story that would uh, sort of make the case <laughs> It's really yeah. a rhetorical question, though. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, how how much time do I have for the? <laughs> Am I going to invite the person to dinner? <laughs> Having it's, the whole. It's the elevator talk, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. The elevator talk. Uh, um, Try to well, be a bit tubbly there. Okay, and the and the climate. Okay, elevator talk. Climate change is a legal problem. I would say you know climate change is real. We need to respond. The best way to do that is through law. That would that, would, that wouldn't be very explanatory. It would be more oh. dictatorially. Yeah, yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I think for explaining it is, um, but that is the hard part because. Yeah. You know, obviously what we're dealing with are extremely complicated topics and that is um and I think in part this is, you know, why I think we got into an issue with carbon trading because we thought it would be extremely simple. You know, it's a market, we set it up, you know, it would be fine. But no, actually, if you want to understand the carbon market, it's really, really complicated. You know, you need to understand economics. You need to understand how the EU functions. You need to understand implementation of EU law in the national legal systems. You need to understand um, internal market, you know, regulation. You need to understand environmental law in the EU. You know, so there are a lot of different threads. It's a very hard, <clears throat> I think, for any valuable discussion mm. beyond you know, the dictatorial one, you would need more time. So I would probably say in an elevator, you know, these are the statements. Uh, join me for a discussion <laughs> where I will unpack this, uh, where I will need more time. Yeah, because we have to recognize that it's a really young field of study. Um, yes. There are probably more questions than, than answers. Uh, compared to something we have done for ages. But this is actually, uh, you are touching upon a, <laughs> uh, another debate in environmental law, and that is the nature of the field. So there is, there is also kind of a debate about, you know, what is environmental law? So is it, 
is it a a new field kind of entirely that exists on its own that is very different from from you know for example contract law or administrative law which has existed for longer um, and then the question is you know well if it's different why is it different so is it you know it is it because environmental problems are of a different kind than other legal problems is environmental damage different from other types of damages that we regulate in in, in law um, and then there's kind of another scholarly field where it says, you know, actually, when we talk about environmental law, we talk about it has the exact same structures that other areas of law, you know, such as administrative law or such as constitutional law, and that it's not actually the framework it sets up is very similar to what already exists. So, but it's true in the sense, so when I studied, I mean, uh, the subject where I discovered carbon markets, which I then studied in um, uh, in London, that was in two thousand four. Yeah, two thousand four. Uh, so that subject had only existed for two years. It was an elective subject, and it had only existed for two years. Um, so it was. So it's very much kind of that. Also, kind of shows to illustrate that. It hasn't, as a subject, it hasn't existed for very long. It must be a bit fun and perhaps a bit frustrating to, to be sort of in the academic startup, <laughs> as it sounds like it is. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's, yes, I, I, don't, I guess I don't see it that way, but, um, and I think that there is, I mean, the fact also that I get this prize, you know, working in this area, you know, also shows that it is a subject that's obviously taken seriously. So I, 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 I don't feel that I'm working in a marginalized subject. And I would, I probably belong to that group, which doesn't necessarily see environmental law is setting up completely new structures. So, uh, you know, my work takes, you know, very much inspiration from, you know, I look at constitutional law, I look at administrative law, so it's, it doesn't exist entirely on its own. I think it's a subject that is a complex subject in the sense that you cannot, you're not confined to your specific field. So you have to kind of be familiar you know, at some point you will have to learn you know more about you know property rights you know property right law or tort law or administrative law constitutional law or and that is kind of just within the legal field and then you have to also understand you know what the economists say you know what are the political scientists saying about the subject or um uh, i don't do that much with science but there is a lot of there are a lot of environmental lawyers who deal with science um you know so I think it's a very fun subject because it pushes you outside of your comfort zone um, the whole time. Uh, and I think that is, that's what's so interesting with it. So you haven't had that many, that many days to sort of dwell on this, I guess, but um, what does this price mean to you and, and your research? So the price is pretty um, spectacular. You know, it's, it's, um, it, it's obviously, 
Yes, <laughs> no, it's, it's a great recognition, uh, and uh, I think it um, you know draws attention to 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 my research, and it also um, you know recognizes it. So it's a great honor, uh, obviously, to receive it.